Matthew Paris is connecting to audio. Looks like we're live. Oh, I heard live. Well, that's real quick. That's awesome. Zach, you, you turned the latency way down. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's set for real-time engagement, so that way anyone in the chat can, you know, real easily see in real-time what we're talking about. They can pop messages into the chat, and then we can respond to those. So You're recording as well, gentlemen. Thank you, Vaughn. Uh, so welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Industry 5.0, 5.0 Solutions live stream, bringing <laughs> you all things virtual reality, augmented reality, and Industry 5.0. Uh, not a marketing term, but <laughs> um, anyways, we do have Matt Paris on the community live today. Uh, we're going live a little bit early today just to kind of chat with you guys. So Walker. What's up? Weekend? My weekend was good. Matt, we, let's say hi to Matt since we haven't even spoken to him yet. He just joined the call. How's it going? Do you go by Matthew or do you go by Matt? Either way. Either way. This is acceptable. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome. This is the audio check, by the way. Audio check. Yeah, we're doing our sound check. Yeah, so Zach is um, the Industry 5.0 thing. We were <clears throat> a lot of people ask, "What is Industry 5.0?" Right? It is. It's going to be the augmented reality component. It's the you know the augmented reality. Uh, the fifth industrial revolution will be how we interact interact realistically with. Processes, colleagues, um, equipment, the business, when we're not actually there through augmented reality and virtual reality. We, one of, what a lot of people don't know, we're on a little early. We're not going to, we won't start for five more minutes, but what we've been testing, our team has been testing now for a few months is co-working, collaborative working through virtual reality. Um, I, I actually work during the day wearing a VR headset and I work in a virtualized environment to do all my development and work. And, um, I'm not the only one I, uh, we, we bought VR headsets for all of our employees. So everybody has a Oculus quest Two. Looking so this good, is, Zach. this is what it actually would look like if you guys are watching the live, yeah. uh, you, you can see what my headset I think you guys should be able to see what my headset looks like. Yeah, we see it. We see it. Um, you look good, Zach. I, I probably I probably look like an idiot, you know. But within this VR environment, it's even immersed with your hands. So I can I have like this smartwatch. So I can pull up my menu, and I have my virtual menu right here. So I can mute. I can make things visible, invisible. I can adjust my monitors like just by clicking and dragging. It's really awesome. A lot of people ask me. They're like, well. It, when I, we talk about it, people will add. So myself and another engineer, we work in an immersed environment during the day. So there's only two of us that are doing it right now. Although everybody can. I think a lot of people are, are testing it. Most of the engineers are testing it. But Zach and I, well, a lot of people have asked me, like, is that, does it really work? Like, I would think it, it, you know, it's distracting or whatever. It's not. It actually, I'm way more efficient. I mean, I can do four hours of development in two hours in an immersed environment. It is the future of work. There's no question about it. Myself, Vaughn, Zach, we, we did a meeting last week, did like a two hour session where we went into a collaboration meeting. Um, and, uh, we were in like a space virtual space station or something. I can't remember what the environment was, but you know, Zach lives in Phoenix. I live in Dallas. Vaughn lives in North of Spartanburg, South Carolina. So we're always working remotely. Although we here, I'm in the Dallas office and we have people who work in the office so uh, that I can go into a conference room and meet with. That's only like a third of our team. And so we were trying to come up with, while Zoom, we like Zoom a lot, but there are some fairly major limitations to Zoom, especially when it comes to collaborative working. Like you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't just like, get on a zoom call and stay on a zoom call all day long or something. You know what I mean? It's just not, it isn't, but when we did, when me, 
Vaughn and Zach did this meeting the other day. I kept saying this to Zach. It was so weird. I was sitting like on a virtual couch and I had my desktop up and I was doing all my work. And then Zach was like on the other side of the room, the virtual room, and he had his desktop up doing his work. And the the tool that we're using, we we can share desktops back and forth to one another. So I can share my desktop with the rest of the group in the room with me. And he can make it a virtual desktop in his workstation so that if I want to present, I can present to him. I can just share my desktop and anybody in the room will be able to see my um, see my desktop and you know watch what I'm presenting. But the biggest thing that stands out is you actually feel like you're in the room together. That's the fundamental difference. Like right now in this Zoom call, I know we are not in the same room. So I, I don't have a, there's a, there's a, like a virtual barrier between us in a VR environment. That's not there. Your brain, the virtual reality plays a trick on your brain and makes you think you're in the same room. So even to the point where when I refer, when I talk to Zach, for example, I actually turn to him where he is in the room. So when I'm, Instead, I turn away from my desk and I look at him and we're talking with our hands to one another. And, it, and my brain is doing that. That's not me doing that. It's just happening automatically because I believe it feels like we're in the same room. Same thing with Zet Vaughn. Vaughn was sitting to my left. Zach was across the room on my right. And every time I talked to Vaughn, I turned to the right or turned every time I talked to Zach, I turned to the right and I was looking at him and he would turn back and look at me. Every, every time, you know, it, yeah, and it's crazy. It really is crazy. And, and when it comes to the immersion fact, so if you're a developer, the only, the best way for me to describe it is this. Um, imagine you could grab, you know, I work with many, several monitors. So right here at this workstation, I have two monitors. I have one here and then I have one over to my left and they're both on mounts, right? But imagine I could, you could grab your monitor and I could place it right here if I wanted to. Imagine that for a moment I wanted to just grab my monitor and pull it right up to my face so that I could look real close at something. You do that in VR. You don't do that in real life. In real life, I lean in. In real life, I have to turn over here. It's a totally different experience. It's, it's this, immersive, this immersive experience. That's how the work gets different. Like I can pull the monitors up to my face. I can, I can slide the monitor out of the way, put it over there and then have a conversation and then pull the monitor back in, you know, it, and, and the tool that we're using has a, uh, um, like a whiteboard feature so you can whiteboard and they're actually making that a lot better, but it, you know, it's, it's, we've been doing a lot of testing. Like we're, we're really focused. We think that this is the direction we're going to go with the community. And right now we're working with the developer of the application to get them to add in Discord support so you can do Discord authentication. And I can invite anyone who's from a, a Discord channel, we can invite to a collaborative environment. Getting people fluent in using virtual reality will be really important. Like it's not a, it's not like a pipe dream thing. It's not a, it's almost, you know, it's like, you know, Steve Jobs used to talk about technology all the time and like how technology for technology's sake isn't valuable. Technology using technology to provide value to the consumer is what's valuable. And it's the same thing, like the virtual reality. I mean, it, it, fun, it does actually make me more productive. It makes, me, makes us more effective working together as a team. You know? So um, anyway, with that, uh, we, we decided to uh, get started early and, but uh, so today, Zach, do you want to introduce us, get us started, kick us off? Yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the... We're two minutes late. Sorry about that. This is why Walker didn't want us to go in VR into this live stream just yet, because he's like, hey, then we're going to have to talk about it. But uh, welcome to the Industry 5.0 live stream. We're here with Matt Paris. Matt, one of the most active members in the Discord. Thank you so much for being here. My, I just want to start before I kick it over to Walker. My first question to you, why, like, why join the Discord? Why, why be so active in there? Like, what do you get out of it? 
Yeah, I uh, joined the Discord probably in was it, late January, early February. Can't remember exactly when. Um, but I joined it not knowing really what Discord was. I'd never been on a Discord server before. Um, so I joined it. Um, immediately, you start seeing messages flying back and forth about various topics. What's been interesting to me is um, it almost feels like it's what people do on Facebook for social um, purposes, except it's a bunch of uh, industrial professionals coming together to do the same type of thing, except regarding their professional careers, technical challenges, architectures, et cetera. So it's almost you can go to that particular Discord server to find that very specific type of content. And uh, even when you're, I mean, there's a lot that's being talked about. You try to segment it through the different channels. Um, there's a lot to filter. You'll, even someone who likes to organize things, you, you find that there's topics that cross over. The general topic explodes all the time with topics that probably should be in individual channels. But you just let it go and uh, people connect. Uh, you can go there, ask questions. Hey, I got this problem I'm facing. Does anyone have experience with that? Um, and, but ideally you're also sharing your experiences as well. You said, hey, I tried something new today. I learned it. This is kind of the lessons learned um, to try to help someone else out along the way. Awesome. Um, so Matt, Paris, we, you know, we, uh, is it Paris or Paris? Paris. Paris. So, um, you know, you and there, there's, there's a, you know, we have thir almost 1400 members in the discord. And I think last week, something like 703 were active. So they posted at least one time in the discord server last week. So, which is about, it, that's normal, about basically 50% of the community posts at least once a week. You obviously post way more than once a week. Um, you know, we comment about you all the time, like, hey, you know, Matt Paris and uh, it, it, the JS, I think it's, it's Jeff Schrader, I think his name is, or, and then, you know, Mario and uh, Ishigawa and, and uh, you know, Dan Riken and, you know, the, all these, th there's like core group of guys that chime in a lot, but we all, the core group, we we're obviously, you know, hey, you just sort of came out of nowhere. We're like, hey, you know, here, and let me, let me say this. With what I do, um, when you're in a technical position, you spot bullshit a mile away, right? It, you, know, you know, most most people who talk about technical subjects, they, I would say most people who talk about technical subjects don't know what they're talking about. And they're also used to talking to people who don't know that they don't know what they're talking about, right? In general, you know, they... They may get, you know, engineers, it, it, there's a common theme in engineering. It's like uh, fake it till you make it, right? Engineers never admit they don't know anything, right? They always act like they have the answer, even if they don't have the answer. And what they're really good at is finding the answer, figuring it out, learning it really quick in 10 or 15 minutes. You're one of the people when you started chiming in, it's clear, you you know, you have, you know what you're talking about. You know your your experience. So, so for, for someone like me, you know, someone like you stands out. Someone like JS stands out. Someone like Mario stands out, right? Jason Coop, another one of my really close friends stands out when they talk. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, they, he gets it. It's little nuances. It's little comments that people make that indicates that they have the experience that, cause that's only something you're going to know if you tried to do this before. Right. So with that being said, why don't you tell us a little bit about you know, I've already sufficiently said I'm impressed with the things that you chime in on. Tell us about your background. Where, you know, where are you from? And, you know, how did you get to where you are? Sure. Where I'm are you and how did you get there? <laughs> I'm in an undisclosed location. It's a beautiful <laughs> weather. Yeah. Um, grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, went to university there, Louisville Cardinals. Um, as a native, say, at Louisville Cardinals. Uh, did a, mat a bachelor's degree in electrical computer engineering. So, the way the university structured it is they had electrical computer engineering or computer engineering and computer science. So those are two different degrees that depend on if your focus wanted to be more hardware or software based. So I took the hardware approach, uh, did internships with the NASA Kennedy Space Center, um, ended up going there full time, uh, did a lot of awesome work uh, down there, as you could imagine. 
Uh, did a master's degree at the University of Central Florida in Orlando uh, in computer engineering and uh, did some research, wrote some uh, thesis and a couple of research papers that way. And then I uh, decided to move back, uh, re return to family um, with my wife who's also from the area. And uh, so we're back in Louisville, sort of worked for GE uh, Energy Management at the time. Mm -hmm. So I was involved in industrial circuit breaker design. And uh, then later when they moved that, that division outside of the city uh, to a different state, uh, moved and joined uh, GE Appliances which happened to be also headquartered here in Louisville, Kentucky. And what so, is your, what's your focus there? So GE Appliances, I'm within the Advanced Manufacturing Engineering Group, which is their charter is to bring uh, new equipment into manufacturing facilities. So our charter is to spec out equipment and that goes from conveyance all the way, um, I mean, everything that you would need to produce a, a part. And so we do that within our group, though I'm within the more specialized group that's discipline-based for uh, quality control equipment. So kind of within my more immediate family, we also have the controls, the PLCs group, and then robotics, and then also our uh, visualization team. So that's what makes up our discipline-based and we cover the, the full business um, across all of our manufacturing facilities. So within my group, though, we're more IT-based. Um, Dealing with quality equipment, we produce all kinds of data. And we got to understand that data flow and how to connect it from the plant floor all the way up into the enterprise. Uh, we also deal with electrical, so dealing with sensor technologies, uh, machine vision. Uh, there's, it's a wide swath and it's almost it requires someone to be successful in this type of role to, be, to have that wide swath. Of right, you're fluent. One of the things that I say when a lot of people have privately messaged me, Hey, you know, when you talk about this Matt Paris guy, or you talk about this JS guy and you say that they stand out, what are you talking about? And I say, Oh, it's their fluency. That's what I say. They're clearly fluent at multiple layers in the stack. And, you know, and when we, when people will ask me, Hey, wh what's the future, the industry, what, it, who, what is the industry 4.0 professional look like? What do they look like? What skill sets do they have? The answer is number one, what makes them stand out is fluency at all levers, layers of the stack. They, you know, when you say ERP, their eyes don't glaze over, you know, they, they can understand master data modeling and ERP and core functionalities and, you know, how events are managed and how external consumers interface with data, both, you know, consuming and publishing confirmations and things like that. They get, they, at a minimum, they have a fluency in that language, right? And that's what stands out. And and there and you're you guys aren't the only example. It's just, you know, we that's what stands out. You can tell right away if somebody is like, okay, they're on the path to being an industry 4.0 professional, or they already are an industry 4.0 professional. But inter let me let me ask you this in terms of the um, you know, you can go into detail how as much as you want or whatever. I don't know. We didn't we did uh, just so you guys know when we do these sessions. I'm talking to him for the very first time when we jump on here. There's no prep. I'm not, I don't ask if there's any questions that are appropriate or not appropriate or anything like that. So if it's not appropriate, just say, oh, yeah, I can't talk about that. But, um, you know, in terms of, you know, so GE is, is a, is a vertically integrated company, right? And so, and they have investments in, in, you know, automation technology. One of my experience with GE has always been, that that's like the, the first, you know, we always look at one of our own solutions first and, but we don't have to go with a GE solution, right? Is, is that the experience that you have? And, and number two, how is, you know, you obviously are architecting a infrastructure for the appliances group that is going to try and leverage some of these, you know, edge driven report by exception MQTT, Sparkplug B, Unified Namespace. How is that being received within your group? Are you working with other people at the same time, collaborating with other people at at work on this very subject? Yeah, this uh, our company is huge. So to, to say that I'm going to architect the full stack myself, uh, it's never going to happen. So you have to have a team uh, within the organization that's uh, a common vision. Um, and knowing where to go. So I'll say this, that GE Appliances uh, is no longer a part of GE Corporate. Um, as right. I when we talk about GE Appliances, we're talking about hire, right? Or is it hire? We, we're, we're a group of hire. Yep. Yep. 
So we are a subsidiary um, similar to Fisher Paykel uh, Candy out of um, Italy. So um, yeah, we that has allowed us to be more receptive to other non-GE technologies. Uh, for example, there was a big push for um, GE PLCs, for example, a while back. Uh, so that's no longer the case. Um, similarly, we, we do have our you know, GE software stack like Prophecy Simplicity that's ingrained in the business. Um, but the people who manage those, they see what else is out there and they wonder, you know, what other value is out there that we could leverage. Um, so they are interested. And so as I talk about these concepts, as I build up proof of concepts, demonstrating some of the more dynamic functionalities, I would say, <laughs> uh, just the common, I was speaking to High Byte, Omar and John, uh, just this morning. Uh, just imagine you have a, a, a supplier, a machine builder, or they're, they're building up your piece of equipment and you deliver to them a gateway. And then that gateway, uh, John even suggested this, which is a great idea. This gateway uh, publishes to a public broker while it's on their floor mm -hmm. during a runoff. And, oh, by the way, we could just move that data over in our enterprise development area and see that, yeah, their data model looks like it's going to be the right one. And then you bring it to the plant floor and you plug it in and away you go. And so a lot of those things is what I define as what industry, uh, industrial internet of things is. The ability to have a an ecosystem where you can plug things in and then things uh, self-discover. Uh, that is the what I consider to be the holy grail. That is the holy grail. I mean, it's a huge component of the, you know, we, we call it a self-aware ecosystem, a self-aware infrastructure where, you know, it's, it's, if what we're going to do is, is if connectivity and data management is going to be point to point, that is, it, it's discrete and manual. I add a machine to the plant floor and then I've got to plug it in and address it. And then I got to connect to it and I got to know the data that's in it and, and then make a decision to pull it out at some frequency. If that's the approach you're going to take, you're going to get passed by right. because technology exists today that allows you to just plug that machine in, plug it in, plug, put it on the network and that machine handles the rest. It, you point it to the infrastructure and everything shows up. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a challenge. The, the part of what we do is we're trying to change the way people think so that they, uh, you know, they call uh, limiting constraints, right? Um, inside of our brain, we're only limited by most of the time our success is we limit ourselves from achieving. In our brain, we will say to ourselves, oh, that's not possible. Therefore, I won't try it. Right. Or that's a ridiculous idea. Therefore, I won't try it. That's called a that's called a limiting uh, limiting constraint. Right. And one of the reasons Zach's on my team, <laughs> we talk about this all the time. Zach is, Zach is a superhero. He has a superpower. And his superpower is that he is, I, I, he has, he is socially, he doesn't pick up on social cues. Zach doesn't. And because he doesn't pick up on social cues, he will suggest things no one else would ever suggest. Like he, he will come up with an idea and instead of self-limiting it, he'll make the suggestion. And Two times out of three, it's like, oh, yeah, that is a ridiculous idea. But one time out of three, it's amazing. And it's the idea that no one would ever suggest because they self-limited, right? This is the issue we have in industry, is that because organizations have been so great at manufacturing as industry 3.0 companies, and they, they came up with great innovative ideas when the technology didn't exist, and they failed... They now have a self-limiting limiting belief inside their head that some of the things that we're preaching now are not possible or they're ridiculous ideas or they're pipe dreams. And what I've discovered is that the first thing we have to do is get manufacturers to forget everything they know about manufacturing, especially the technology. Forget everything that you know about it. And let's start from scratch. Let's say... Let's put on a whiteboard if we were going to build the perfect infrastructure. And we're not going to put it, we're not going to build it within the constraints of the technology. But let's say here's how it would actually work. How would it work? Describe that on a board. And the first thing they're going to say is 
Well, I would plug my PLC in and then all my software would just know the tags that are in the PLC. It would be wireless. You'd plug it in and it would just wirelessly transmit all the events. That's what they would say probably, right? Well, that's possible. <laughs> and, it, and it's not even ridiculously expensive to do that. So um, I know we're a couple minutes over, but I want to ask you one more question, which is what it, what's the biggest thing you've gotten out of being a member of the community? I mean, you've been a really active member for like two months now, um, helped a lot of people. I love your contributions. I, I make a point to read everything that you say. Um, what is the, what's, what have you, what's the most that you've gotten from the community? You know, we work really, really hard to make sure that the Discord server is valuable to engineers and industry 4.0 professionals. That's why we're adamant about people not actively selling on the server and all that kind of stuff. And, and industry 5.0 professionals. <laughs> the industry 5.0 for this. But what's the, what's the big takeaway for you? Why, why is it you're so active other than, you know, you're, you're talking to like-minded people, but what's the thing that you've gotten the most out of it professionally? I think it's uh, being there on the server. Um, for me, I've, I've been very targeted in trying to, to leverage. Is there something new I'm just not aware of? I mean, there's only so much Googling you can do right. uh, regarding things. So all kinds of people have different experiences and ideas. And uh, it's a big topic. There's a lot of companies out there that do different things. And so being able to pub, you know, post a question, hey, has anyone come across this? You get uh, ideas. Um, so I've done that a few times myself and have come across technologies that I just was not aware of before. Uh, so that's been kind of number one. Um, Number two, I think it's been it's been interesting to see the swath of people that are on this. So I come from one end of the spectrum, uh, very technical, uh, and I've, I've told you this before in a private message that your videos, when I started watching them about a year ago, I was really frustrated by them. <laughs> oh, because I'm every, high level. Everything, everything I say that you is were high talking level. Talking about of. Um, people don't get details, so it's hard to tell. Do they know what they're talking about? Right. That's where you were in my mind about a year ago. Yeah. And, uh, so it's very frustrating because you would just gloss over huge issues or, or technical things that need to be considered. Um, so I started troll, like I said, I started trolling you on YouTube, uh, getting trying to get clarifications. But of course, that's not that wasn't the format. You're you're trying to reach a bigger group of people. Right. So when you're on the Discord server, you see that. There are people that are very technical. There are people there that are saying, I'm graduating college and I'm, I'm trying, or I'm even in college and I'm trying to figure out how I get engaged in this area. Um, so I'm here on the server trying to just learn about what all is out there. So it is a wide spectrum. It's people that, are, that were never technical that are really interested by it. And so they're now starting to dive into it. So there's something to be said about you're seeing this community form that is driven um, not by what you know, but it's what you want to do. Um, and so it's more mission-based. And so people are driven by the mission because they want to get on board and, uh, and drive it forward in whatever capacity that they're capable of doing. Awesome. Um, wherever they're at. Well, I appreciate your contribution and I, I appreciate your trolling actually. I, I really do. I, the, the, that comments I've, I've heard it, several times. We don't hear it a lot because we made a conscious effort to there inside baseball on our content. There were really two mandates that I, when we decided we were going to start shooting content that I told Zach, I said, number one, we're not shooting commercials. Okay. We're not going to sell anything. We're not going to, there's no call to action to buy something or, you know, none of that. We're going to inform, we're going to provide value. And that's it. That's all the content's going to do. We're going to try and educate. Number two, we're going to educate as broad an audience as we possibly can. So there are many times, many, many times, Zach edits out most of the details. When I get into technical details, I will say to him again, listen, that part, I'm going to lose people there. We, that has to be cut out of the video. We got to cut that out. We, the audience is designed. We have to be able to speak to business development people. We got to be able to speak to C-levels. We got to be able to speak to the engineer. Um, what we try to do is answer the, the detailed questions in mentorship, mastermind. We try to answer the technology questions in the Discord on a case-by-case -case basis through emails when people reach out to me directly. And 
every time that we've we have gotten into a technical discussion, it hasn't gone well in in terms of the the on YouTube and the in the broader in the in the broader content. It you know very few people watch it. Um, it uh, the 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 retention rate is very very low. What we can tell is that the vast majority of the audience needs the con the ten thousand foot and the five thousand foot explanation, and only a fraction needs the 1000 or the 100 foot explanation. And so what we decided was, all right, we'll, we'll answer those fractional questions on a case by case basis, as opposed to trying to answer them in our broader content. But I, I do appreciate, you're very appreciated in the community, man, I, for real. And I'm really thankful that you're here. Uh, those guys are asking for a director's cut of some of our content, Zach. I was, I was kind of hoping that y'all would get a little bit more into the technical weeds here but uh thank you so much uh for joining the uh community spotlight matt uh if, if you guys or gals we we would like to actually have a, a woman on the spotlight so if you guys or gals want to reach out to uh, me on Discord, oh, i want to have i want cheryl to come on here for sure absolutely <laughs> um we you know we do the community spotlight every week here on tuesday make sure to subscribe and ring the bell um there was something i wanted to share oh two discord updates one, we added a new channel on robotics this week. So check that out. And then two, um, I'll think about it. I forgot, actually. You get one one Discord update for now. Um, oh, okay. two. two uh, ma the, we're going to do a mastermind voice call this Friday. So, but you, everyone that was in the mastermind should already know about that. So we'll see you guys on Friday. Uh, thank you, Dan, for uh, last Friday. Yes. Um, the yeah, I, I thought last Friday's mastermind went great. It was definitely much more technical than we normally get. Um, well, more detailed. I don't want to say it was necessarily more technical. We've had other technical sessions, but yeah, I would love to have Cheryl on next week. Let's do Cheryl next week if she if she's willing to do it. Um, all right. I want to go over. Uh, we're going to do the questions now, but I, I want to touch on. Um, where is the first thing we're going to start with is you guys may have seen this video, um, which is the mo who's the most innovative manufacturer on the planet. I wanted to comment on something Dave Kronberger said. So, um, for those of you that haven't watched the video, the most innovative manufacturer on the planet, it it's not Tesla, but it's the one that we can mention. So they're, but they're right up there. I mean, they're one of the in our experience of all the clients, you know, top five, um, for sure. Um, but for this video, we're saying it's Tesla, right? And so this Dave Kronberger guy said, you know, Tesla gold standard, how they had water leaks, paint defects, uneven seams. None of that gets fixed by a software update. All valid points, right? But what Dave Kronberger said there indicates that his detachment with the consumer Right. And I, I want to talk about a, a, a message that um, that Steve Jobs made. There's a really famous video uh, where you can Google it. it, it it's, you know, Steve Jobs gets in, his response to being insulted. OK. And so when Jobs took back over Apple in, I think he took it over early 2000, right? 2000, 2001, something like that. He came back to Apple and took over. They were on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, they made some some key decisions. Um, one of the key decisions that they made was to abandon um, OpenDoc as part of their um, software foundation. Okay, now for Mac OS and OpenDoc was beloved by the engineer and software development community, the, the especially those who worked at Apple. And there was a question that was asked by one of the engineers who said. You know, he basically said, you know, Mr. Jobs, you know, what have you what have you been doing for the last seven years? And um, and what do you know about? I think he said, what do you know about OpenDoc? He was ba basically what the software developer was saying was we don't um, you know, you're, you're not a software developer. You're not an expert here. So why did you make the decision to kill OpenDoc? And here's here's what um, Jobs said. He said, there's plenty of great technology we're probably going to get rid of. Okay. 
but technology doesn't do you any good if no one buys it. Okay. And so what he said is that fundamentally what you have to do is if you want to sell anything, you have to start with the customer experience and work your way back. That's what he said. And he said, you know what? You're right. Open Docs probably more, uh, you know, it's a better solution than Java. You know, you're right. Open Doc is probably um, better than X, Y, and Z. But if we can't turn Open Doc into something that maximizes the customer experience, then it's of no value to us. Okay. U.S. or automotive manufacturers. If you want to know why Tesla has killed auto manufacturing, by the way, I mean those of you who work for like Ford and General Motors and Chrysler and um, and other companies, okay, um, you better start looking for other jobs in the finance divisions of those companies or in the venture in the ventures that those companies. You know, you know, Ford has its own. AI venture group, right? Um, so does General Motors. Um, General Motors made a huge investment in Rivian. But the, 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 the traditional combustion engine product lines that these companies have developed are going to evaporate. And they came to the electric car game too late. Just like there are manufacturers who are getting to the digital transformation game too late. You know, we shot a video two years ago saying, if you don't have a strategy today or you don't have it in the next 12 months, you're screwed too late and you better start looking for someone to sell to. Now, I know that sounds like me being a blowhard or, you know, I, I know it can come off that way. That doesn't make it any less true. Okay. Um, two years ago, if you Google any, any, convert, any article about Elon Musk two years ago, it was a hit pit. It was a hit piece. He doesn't know what he's doing. Tesla's going to go broke. And all along, Tesla knew, hey, we've created what the consumer actually wants. And that is a car that gets better after they buy it. And guess what? They were willing to accept water leaks, paint defects, uneven seams in order to get that. So what does that say about what the other auto manufacturers were doing wrong? You know, if, if you're a... If you're a an automotive manufacturer who thinks that the most important thing to the customer is that the door closes smoothly. Quality is important. It is. But they focus too much on getting the highest amount of quality in a static product that you have to replace every five years. That's what manufacturers did. The car doesn't get any better, right? And you got to, and they want you to replace it every five years. That's why cars today don't last nearly as long as cars that were built in the fifties, sixties, and seventies, right? The life uh, a car doesn't last thirty years now. Um, hell, you'd be lucky if it lasts fifteen. Um, the point is, is that Dan, Dave Kronberger here, his standard, his gold standard for auto manufacturers is quality, a quality standard in his head, which is, you know, water leaks, paint defects, and not even seams. What he doesn't understand is that the consumer wants a product that gets smarter. The consumer wants a better experience. And I own many cars and I've driven, you know, the best cars in the world. I own some of the best cars in the world. And let me say this unequivocally. There's absolutely no better driving experience than getting into a Tesla. None. And it's not even fucking close. Not even close. Not Ferrari, not Bentley, not Porsche, not BMW. So I can pay 4X for one of those upper level vehicles, or I could spend $50,000 to drive a Tesla or have a Tesla drive me and make me feel like I'm in a rocket ship. That's the experience. It's the customer experience. That's right. Uh, Jeffrey Schrader, J, the, our famous JS, Tesla's quality defects have, seemed to, have not seemed to impact the wide-scale desirability of their product. Why? Because those defects don't lower the customer experience. So um, 
Look at look it, at the um the and new that's that's the point. <laughs> cyber cyber trucks not even going to have a paint line. It's going to save the manufacturing facility like one hundred eighty million dollars on their assembly line. It's one of the most expensive part of that process is the paint shop. So by having it just a raw body form that's like simple bends, the customers have already bought like what six hundred thousand pre orders. It's over and, that now. It's over and, that now. It's like the 39,000. So the product's also getting cheaper through the scale of their gigafactories, right? I mean, because I the- told you guys I bought a I bought a Model Y a couple weeks ago, right? And and I, I pick up next week and I Zach wants to be here. I won't I won't be able to pick it up. I have to wait till I get back. So I'm gonna go to Florida. But the I, so I bought a Model Y a couple weeks ago. And I, I was telling you guys the experience that you know. Tesla didn't just change the car driving experience. They changed the car manufacturing experience. They changed the car buying experience. They changed the car maintaining experience. They changed everything. Elon Musk did when he started building the Gigafactory, he didn't go, how, how is everybody else building cars? And what, what supply chains are they using? And what suppliers are they using? He didn't ask those questions. I think originally he, he did with the Roadster. And then he well, realized that wasn't going to work. Well, I'm talking about when he did the when he did the Gigafactory and, and put the Model S line in. He didn't ask those questions. What he did was he went in into a room with a whiteboard and he said, how should this work? That, my friends, is digital transformation. Digital transformation for manufacturers starts with a conversation saying, no, not it isn't. Let's not focus so much on how we do it right now. Let's focus on how we should do it and then figure out how to get from where we are to where we should be. That's digital transformation. That's that path, right? And everything that we teach is all about what technology you should be using, what architecture you should be using, what project management methodology you should be using, where, where should your primary focus be? Where should you start with your proof of concept? And then, and then how do you iterate through that process to add the capabilities that you're looking for, right? Um, the new manufacturer, I want to talk about this before I answered the questions. Um, I, I was doing a, a consulting session this morning, so I'm doing a digital transformation maturity assessment all week. In fact, this is the only two-hour window that I'm not meeting with the client all week long. And and in the, I met with the engineering group of, of this, this client this morning, and, and um, we, I was talking about the, the new manufacturer, right? And... and the new manufacturer, you know, today when you when you go visit a manufacturer, the one of the first things that you want to do is you want to find out, well, what type of house is this? Is this a Siemens house? Is this a Rockwell house? Is this a Schneider house? Is it a GE house? Right. One of the first questions you ask, right? The manufacturer of the future, you're not going to care about are they a Rockwell house? Are they a Siemens house? Or, you know. You're going to want to know what technology they're using. You're going to ask, what does your tech stack look like? How, how, is, it, how is everything interconnected? You know, how do you construct? You know, what data models are you using? What asset models are you using? How do you build your event frames? Um, you're going to ask those questions. And you're going to use common technology to interconnect all the smart things. And the, the manufacturers of um you know the manufact the in, the automation companies you know the rockwells uh, of the world and the siemens of the world they are going to be less vertically integrated and we know that and the reason why is because all those companies you know siemens probably does it best in terms of vertical integration they do they're german i mean they should right they do it best but they can't innovate <laughs> that's the biggest problem that they have Rockwell does basically everything terribly with the exception of the PLCs they bought from Alan Bradley. I mean, I, I, there are very, very few Rockwell products that I've come across where I've been impressed, like just blown away. Factory Talk Asset Center was one of them. Um, external supplier model, yep. Um, you know, the, the manufacturer of the future is technology-centric. Uh, well, the, the, techno, the manufacturer of today is technology-centric and not solution-centric. And that's the same thing with the automation companies, the automation providers. Um, all right, let me 
Yeah, Walker, I'll add something too. Is, um, yeah, man, please. So you're talking about all the engineering integration from the top down of how to get data out of the plant floor. Um, and you got to wonder who enjoys doing that because it's very tedious. It's labor right. intensive. And people who do that are stuck in not having time to think about the higher level things. All those topics that you just talked about, data models, what technology am I using? You can't think about those higher level things if you're too busy doing all the labor intensive uh, integration part. And that's a great point. I, I actually said that this morning. So when I, at the very end of the engineering session that I had this morning, I said, you know, a lot of people will ask me, well, you know, if what you're talking about, this technology driven approach, I mean, aren't you essentially, if we adopt this, aren't he, aren't we essentially engineering out our own jobs, right? That I get that question a lot. And my answer is always no. Like, and I, and I, and the director who was on the call when I was, I was directing my answer to her. And I said, right now, there are all sorts of great ideas that you don't get to implement because you don't have enough time or you don't have the money. Right. Okay. And the reason you don't have the time is because you're focusing on things that should just be a function of your infrastructure. You're trying to solve problems that should be mitigated by your architecture and your infrastructure, number one. And number two, you're spending all your money. You're spending a disproportionate amount of your money spinning your wheels, trying, you know, spending 18 months trying to do something that should take one week. So imagine that you mitigate that out. Well, now what you've done is you freed yourself up to do all those higher level things that you never get to. Right? The the you know, the, the everybody wants to do predictive analytics, but they don't want to do all the things you need to do first so that you can effectively predict failures. They don't want to, and the, and the, and the and the issue is it's a function of technology strategy and partnerships, right? But I I I really I I had the exact same discussion this morning exactly what you're talking about. Um, all right, let's go here. I want to answer a couple of questions. So MFG said, Hey guys, I hope you're well. We are well. Thank you for asking. If you were building a greenfield site with all of the layers in the stack in the industrial manufacturing arena, using the technology eccentric approach that Walker talks about, what would be the best selection of component components for each element in the architecture? So each layer in the stack, thanks in advance. And then there was a follow-up comment. Zach asked a great question. What's your digital strategy, which is exactly what I would ask. And then he said to have a touchless supply chain from customer order to shipment and payment received, uh, to be able to build and deploy cobot production lines for custom manufacturing on site and at the customer location and include quality assurance using AI machine vision, 3d and 4d scans and a closed loop process to feedback and reprogram the cobot line where adjustments are necessary. All right. Touchless supply chain is only a reality for certain processes, right? So if by touchless, he means no human intervention um, in, the, in the customer order through manufacturing to shipment and payment received, that's a noble goal, but one I don't think even will give you the return you're looking for, right? Um, but that being said, the spirit of his statement makes a lot of, I understand the spirit of his statement. So I want to show you kind of what I mean. Now, there is not, there isn't one tried and true select, uh, a suite of components. Okay. So the, the, the solutions that we would pick are a function of what your problem is. Okay. So but what that being said, I'm going to go ahead and explain where, where I think the best solutions are. If I have a brand new facility, which we do do, we're designing Greenfield now, and kind of what stands out the most, where, what, what keeps getting designed the most, all right? So let's start with um, out on the edge. The number one PLC that we're picking is the Opto 22 Groove Epic, okay, in a Greenfield implementation. Um, why? Because it is, it's all the things you want to, you want a PLC of the future to be. Okay. It's, it's HMI, it's industrial PC. It is PLC. It's ladder, you know, it's customized ladder logic and fully standardized, you know, um, IEEE standardized 
uh, logic. Um, it's it's you know it's it's really the the cream of the crop. It's the if if you want the the gold standard for what a PLC should be in an industry 4.0 environment, it's the Groove Epic, and it's not even close. If you, you if you do a if you rate it on a scale of one to ten, the Groove Epic is a ten. Everything the next closest thing is a seven. Okay, in its price point. What I want to point out here is that we we break out PLCs into price points, right? So the Groove Epic is the seven thousand dollar price point. Okay, the PLC next is the eight hundred to thousand dollar price point. Okay, and then the Easy Rack one hundred thousand K, one million K. Yeah, and and the and the S seven twelve hundred is in the $500 right price range. Okay. So what we do is we break the hardware out into categories and pricing categories. The the best of the best of the best is the Groove Epic. If you want best value, it is clearly the PLC Next because they're definitely undercharging for the PLC Next. There's no question about it. Um, they could easily get $2,500, $3,500 a unit. Um, and Ira told PLC. me. Ira told me to stop, stop saying. That. Oh, I mean, <laughs> it's definitely going to get in trouble if we keep saying. That. Yeah, it's definitely underpriced. It's, I mean, in terms of power, in terms of horsepower, it. I mean, it's it's in capabilities, right? The Groove Epic is is good pricing. I wish they had a cheaper option, you know. But, um, all right. The AWS Greengrass in every. Greenfield implementation, we're using some type of greengrass tool out on the edge. Okay, um, we're we're putting greengrass out on the edge in some way, shape, or form. If we're gonna pick the HMI, so we get to pick the HMI for each individual machine, we're gonna use Factory Studio. So, part of what I love about Factory Studio is that it's like Highbyte. It, you know, the same tool is is um, it, it, the same tool can operate on the edge at a very inexpensive price point and at the enterprise level at an enterprise price point. Um, but the HMI is going to be Factory Studio. But however, there are scenarios where we're going to pick the CMTS VR. But if you want to know, the CMTS VR is, a, is an appliance that's running on the board back there. It has more drivers than, the fact, than Factory Studio. So my problem may be that I need to talk to some legacy device and I might pick the CMTS VR. But if I'm picking my PLCs and I pick the Opto 22 Groove Epic, I'm using Factory Studio for my HMI. I'm probably going to pick Ignition for the SCADA layer and I'm going to use Canary Labs Historian. Okay. Um, and then MES 4.0 is going to run in, in this case, it'll run inside of Ignition and we're going to use Flow for real time predictive analytics. I'm going to have all of this. The red box here is an IIoT platform using Highbyte. So the IIoT platform in this case would be Ignition. So it's basically the environment for solving problems. And we're going to use Highbyte for our modeling. Okay. And then um, at the ERP layer, I'm probably going to pick Odoo. Okay. For mid-size and small companies. And I'm going to pick SAP for a large enterprise. And then what I'm going to do is use the business connector with the SAP um, B2 MML, MML um, uh, mapper to convert the SAP BAPI into the MQTT topic namespace through the IoT platform. So I'd be able to integrate SAP into the IoT platform. And then I'm going to use Infor for my EAM, the Enterprise Administration module. And then in the cloud, we're going to be AWS for the cloud infrastructure, data lake, and all of the, the pre-canned um, analysis tools because it's going to natively integrate into the IoT infrastructure. And then we're going to use Expanse AI for our machine learning. If you guys, you guys may um, ask the question, who's Expanse AI? You're definitely going to figure, you're definitely going to find out who these guys are soon. Um, but they're awesome. But, yep. Question. Um... Let's say you started with a single manufacturing plant 
and you don't like have full enterprise capabilities, would you not just do the ERP in ignition? Like, let's say you're doing like a startup company and would you, would you get a Udu out of the box? I would use Odoo. Uh, I'd use an on-prem installation of Odoo and, and that was, that's where I would start. I, I may interact with the Odoo backend, the OD master data bottle through ignition, but I wouldn't rebuild all the UI and all that stuff in ignition. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't, I, you can't do that. It's just Odoo seamlessly integrates and he's asking me, what would I do from scratch? Uh, Francisco Diaz, this is a good question. Walker, do you think edge computing displaces PLC systems? No. Um, I think there are things that you try to do in a PLC now that gets replaced by edge computing systems, but your process control, your edge models, those things are all, um, you know, use the right tool for the job. Let me say this guys. Don't try to write automation inside your IIT platform. Don't try to do process control from software. Don't do that. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. Um, all right. Th that's the answer to that question. Uh, okay. Great, great question. Tenable.io. What do I think about Tenable.io software? Um, okay. I tested Tenable. Uh, beginning of last year as a, so for those of you who don't know, Tenable is, um, it's a, like, um, what it's really known for is like doing in intrusion analysis. You know, it's, it's a security solution that has a cloud-based, um, a cloud-based front end that can basically shows you all your highest risk within your, your network, uh, infrastructure. Um, it's a uh, learning curve short seems pretty slick. I have no idea what the pricing model is like. It will integrate into um, an IoT infrastructure because their cloud solution supports MQTT. I'm just not so sure that it's something I would ever integrate with because we're, we would be leveraging the IT professionals to do this type of analysis, but I might steer them towards Tenable for this use case. How do you implement model predictive automation inside this stack? Using the AWS, using the AWS Greengrass infrastructure, so site-wise, uh, answer KA's question. How do you implement model predictive automation inside the stack? So you're going to use the AWS um, IoT infrastructure, Greengrass on the edge. You're going to use the um, predictive analytics tools in the in the cloud for the Amazon models, the AWS models. You're going to use Expanse AI for the rest of the infrastructure models. And Expanse will publish back um, predictions into the broker namespace. All right. Uh, ben Venema, I actually thought this was funny too. Um, so what I when I look at this chart here, I have no idea who made this. It came from Computer Economics in 2021. Oh, and explain but, what the chart is for those listening on the podcast. Yeah, what what the chart is showing you here is your te technology risk reward analysis. So. In the lower left-hand corner, these are use cases um, or technologies that if in the lower left-hand corner, it is low, it's high risk and it's low reward. So anything that's in the low, lower left-hand corner, you are um, not going to want to do. Anything that's in the upper right-hand corner, you're going to want to do. And what, right? is, so, what is the one in the very lowest left-hand corner? Is that the lowest high risk, low reward is ERP, right? Um, that's number 15. And in the upper right-hand corner, SD-WAN is, is uh, the lowest risk, highest reward. But it's a couple of interesting ones, like they did artificial intelligence is low risk and high reward. Um, that's horseshit. I mean, unless you, I mean, unless you um, have the right infrastructure. Right. Unless you got the right infrastructure, unless you got the right architecture, AI is impossible. I mean, it's literally impossible. So obviously the risk would be high, right? That if risk is loss of money, it's not just, you know, cataclysmic failure. A couple other ones though, like mobile applications are low, low risk, high reward. Again, without the right infrastructure, it's not even achievable. Uh, robotic process automation. I'd put robotic process information at almost in the upper right-hand corner. Um, there's a lot of 
places where robots should be in processes that we just don't see them. And it's not because the risk is high or the reward is low. Um, but anyway, I, I agreed with uh, uh, Ben here. But they did IoT as high risk, high reward. Um, yeah, CRM was another one that they did. They did a C CRM was um, high risk, low reward. Um, if you're in business development, you'd completely disagree with that. And if you're a business development manager, you'd disagree that um, implementing a CRM is high risk, low reward. No, it's not. I own 49 companies now. And I tell you, CRM is a critical component to our, the, our ability to do our job. But they, the big thing was they did the Internet of Things is high risk, high reward. And it's actually quite, it's minuscule risk and high reward, assuming you have the right architecture, which is edge-driven, report by exception, lightweight, open architecture. There's literally no risk to, an, to the Internet of Things if all of your devices are only publishing over MQTT. There's literally no risk. There's no inbound, you don't have any inbound ports open, nothing like that. Eamon. Hello, all. I have a question regarding OT cybersecurity. I had a discussion with a cybersecurity engineer on how to connect the OT network into an existing um, SIEM um, infrastructure. So that's system information event management. Any idea how might this connection, how this might be and what kind of event can potentially be a cybersecurity threat? Example, unauthorized login. The answer to your question is how it integrates is dependent upon the tool you pick. Um, and there are some that natively support um, IIoT protocols out of the box. AMQP is the most popular one. So, uh, you know, AMQP uh, broker pubs up. MQTT or SQL data to use for IOTT. Uh, yeah, MQTT, uh, Francisco Diaz. Um, SQL is, you, you, if you want to bring in SQL data into your IoT infrastructure, you're going to do that through an MQTT broker. SQL is far too inefficient. Paul Vitor, what is the best approach to have IIoT with the existing SCADA system that doesn't support IIoT? This is a great question. Should we just build the unified namespace and leave the existing SCADA out? Or do we need to rebuild the SCADA screens into a new system that supports IIoT? All right. I don't know what platform you're using, what SCADA system you're talking about. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, Cheryl McCrary, uh, SIEM would be like your... Windows event logs is a good example. Uh, like on a like server 2019, you'll have event logs that are unique to the network infrastructure. That those SIEM event logs or the event logs in a like a Windows server that is um, SIEM. That's like the pre-can version. Let me. Um, let me oh, oh. Hold um, on. Um, so to answer your question, the best way to to bring the SCADA system into the infrastructure is vast majority, nearly all SCADA systems support some type of OPC, OPC UA server. So either they act as a server or they act as a client. Most of them act as a server. So most of them have a plugin to allow you to connect to the SCADA system and, and view the data over an o, uh, OPC UA connection. So what we would do is we would connect to... Um, we would connect to uh, the SCADA system over OPC UA and then convert the OPC UA topic namespace into an MQTT topic namespace. That's the most common use case. In the event you're using a SCADA system that doesn't support OPC UA and doesn't have another mechanism to expose the data externally, then we're going to leave it out and leave it dark for the time being in the early iterations of the digital transformation. You're going to leave that out and you're going to focus on use cases where you can provide value using the infrastructure. And then as you provide more and more value over the digital transformation iterations, your capability iterations, you use that political capital that you earn to make the case for either upgrading that SCADA system to something that natively supports your technology stack, or you go to the vendor who develops that SCADA system. Let's use Aviva, for example. Aviva didn't initially support MQTT Spark Plug B. And you know, they had a first bite at the Apple seven years ago, and then they didn't adopt it. And they realized it was a huge mistake. Why? Because the number one conversion in the world, SCADA conversion, is from Wonderware to Ignition. 
And it's, and it's been that way for like six straight years now. The number one conversion is to go from Wonderware in touch or system platform to Ignition. So Aviva finally had to come around and adopt MQTT Spark Plug B. In that case, there was a huge business case all across the market to do it. But if you work for, like, if you work for GE, for example, GE has a ton of buying power. They can influence the vendors a lot more than, say, just Joe Schmo engineer off the off the road. So there is a way to integrate Apollo, uh, but it, it again, it's going to be on a case by case basis. Oh, quick, quick one. I want to uh, share real quick um, the the Discord. Hold on, let's see if this works. Matt, any? Uh, did you have any any other comments that you wanted to? Not in particular. Um, I think trying to develop in parallel and then um, showing uh, the value of that parallel system, doing what you want from the ground up, and then trying to see how you can get things to play with the, that new architecture. And then over time, what you'll end up doing is having that be your new architecture. I, I say all the time, don't, you know, don't get caught trying to fight the theoretical battles that you're never no. going to win. You know, don't fight the theoretical battles, win the results war. And so find a place where you can provide value using your idea and, and win those results wars, right? Win the results wars. You'll build political capital. And like Matt said earlier, you're going to build a team of like-minded thinkers, right? And, and, and An you army. do that either by finding people who already think the way you do or convert people. And you convert people through results. And when you have right. that, that uh, alternative that set up, you'll, you'll be able to quickly see whether people are interested in that and then they want to learn more. Like, how did you do that? Or I don't want to waste my time with that. So you'll quickly see where people stand. Awesome. Hey, I appreciate you. Hey, Zach, I have to drop because I have a call with a client right now at this moment. All right. So we'll see you guys next week on the stream. And uh, if any questions that we didn't get to today, we'll get to them next week and make sure to join the Discord. Link will be down below. Thank you, guys. Hey, Matt, thank you for participating, man. It was uh, really valuable for us. You're welcome. Sure. Thank you, brother. See you all.